Well, it's good to be back with everybody today. I have been uh, out of town for about a week with my family in Florida. And, well, has anyone been to Daytona Beach, Florida? See a show of hands. It was my, it's pretty good. Okay. Uh, who loves Daytona Beach? Who's been? Most hands should go up. Did you go during bike week? Is that why you didn't raise your hand? As we were leaving, bike week was heading into town. So when we were driving to the airport, there was about a thousand motorcycles heading back toward us, which made me both relieved that we weren't going to be in the crazy city when all the bikes showed up and also jealous because I would have loved to have just hopped on the back of one of the bikes from these burly men and driven back in to the city. Uh, this is the first time that my daughter had ever been to the beach and the second time that my son had been. And I grew up going to the Gulf Coast, uh, Destin, Santa Rosa area for most of my childhood, at least once or twice a year. But it's been a long time since my family has been back. And so we were looking forward to this trip. A friend of mine who I went to graduate school with, seminary, uh, who I've talked about before, he's a pastor in Kentucky. And his family had a place that was on the fifth floor on the beach side of the ocean. And so you could see just out the big double door windows, the waves each morning. Um, and it was, well, it was what the beach always is. If you love the beach, there's a few people who said you don't like the sand and we can talk and pray afterwards. <laughs> uh, or if you go to the mountains, you might have the same kind of feeling. But Corey and I set out on the porch. We got in about midday last Saturday and we sat on the balcony uh, looking out over the waves and you just are thinking what you think in those spaces, which is some version of gratefulness. Uh, but Corey and I sat silent for quite a while, and then she said uh, close to what I was thinking, which is, this feels like such a cliche to love these kind of places. Um, if you ask people when they've experienced God in their life or recently, most often it will be what we call those mountaintop experiences, which usually involves an actual mountaintop or maybe just some large, grand display of nature. But what I realized sitting there was my own smallness and the world's largeness. And this didn't give me uh, a sense of terror, but for some reason a sense of security. There was nothing I could do here. There was nothing I could make happen but just sort of receive. And the white noise of nature started to wash away the chaos of everything else. Um, but my son, Judah, who's nine, his favorite thing to do in life, but especially at the beach, is hunt for treasures. Now, this gets you in trouble when you're in those kind of parts of the city where treasures mean uh, things that you shouldn't pick up because they have sharp edges or they might give you some form of uh, transmitted disease. And so your kid is always like kneeling down and grabbing. It's a dangerous thing. But at the beach, it's not always that way. Although... I did find it's not, no beach trip is complete without the discovery of a used medical hypodermic needle on the sand. I don't know where they come from. I don't know what animal lives in these that they get to wash up in this, but yep, I took a picture of it. Sure enough, Judah didn't find it. I told him to watch out for them, but he would hunt every day. And what he wanted was a sand dollar. Y'all know what a sand dollar is, right? Uh, he did not know what a sand dollar was. And so when he found little pieces of them, he realized that these pieces go together. And he thought, there's got to be like a whole one out there somewhere. 
And so we would walk earlier in the morning before everyone else was up in Adam along the beach, and we didn't know where to look because we're not from Daytona. And sure enough, this sweet uh, older lady named Lee who lives at the beach saw us like... Uh, well, novices that we were, looking in all the wrong places for everything. And so she said, come this way. And she said, what you want to do is you want to look where the seaweed line is, because that's where high tide has brought everything in, and all the good stuff gets stuck up in the seaweed. And so, and you need to come out before uh, everybody else, otherwise people like me have come and taken all the good stuff. And so she handed us a couple of really rare, beautiful seeds and other things you this is this, and this is that. This is a hamburger seed, which is my favorite thing, and this is a, a heart of the sea kind of seed, and uh, here's where you find this, and here's where you find that, and Judah's eyes just kind of light up. And so every morning, and then every day when we were out, uh, that's all he did was just kind of pace back and forth, searching, searching, searching. And he found a lot of things. We all did. Uh, we would bring in a big Ziploc gallon bag every day of treasures, and I realized that we flew so we could not bring said treasures all home. And beach shells and such are real fragile. And I was concerned about what we'd be able to make it home with. So the last night we were there, I said, it's time to clean it all. We've got to wash all the sand off and we have to sort it to figure out what we can take and what we have to leave behind. And so he's over at the sink with me, sort of pulling all of the things he wants. And uh, there was this small shell, it was a, you know about this this long and, and, and pretty tightly wound and it was real thick, so they held together. They didn't break quite as easy and they were beautiful. And we found like four or five of them. It was one of my favorites. And he said, uh, he brings them all to me and they're all clean. He goes, uh, we have to bring all of these home. And I think, well, of course we have to bring all of these home. These are beautiful. And he goes, because, well, because this one I need to give to my friend at school and then this one I've got to give to so-and-so and this one I've got to give to so-and-so. And he has spent his entire week looking for these things. And, and as we head home and he realizes he can only take like 10% of them back with him, what is he going to take for the people he cares about so that he can, so that he can give them away? Every day when we got to the beach, there would be a new line of seaweed and there would be a new set of treasures. And then every day, some people would, like us would come along and pick them all up. And then night would fall, tide would go out, tide would come back in, and there would be a whole new set every day. It was this beautiful rhythm, and it became this picture of plenty, of an abundance. You couldn't exhaust the thing. You could just experience it. You could hold it in your hand for a period of time, and the sea would continually give it back to you. And the sea belongs to God, just like the mountains belong to God. And there is something in the economy of nature that provides. And in this economy, it was very hard to exhaust or to extinguish the gift. And Judah somehow knew this, and he thought, I can give these away because there's more every morning. When I was on the beach watching life happen around me, as I do, because I'm a preacher and a pastor, I think, what story is this telling me? And then what is it that I can share with others about this time? And as we were on the plane headed back, you know, I've got all these pieces and I think about Judah and these shells and I think, I've got to save this one. This is a good story. I shouldn't tell it my first week back. I should save it up and then give it to him later on or give it to him in little bits as though the words are going to run out. I've taken what is beautiful about this experience and turned it into something I can keep in my pocket or in my wallet and save it and not spend it. 
My son held them in his hand, and he said, this one's for this person, and this one's for this person. It's just this generosity that flows out. And so this story I give to you, because I don't want to waste it. I want to I spend it. The writer Annie Dillard, if you've not read any of her work, you should at some point take about a month out of your life and read slowly one of her books. She is good at noticing the world. She says this in a book of essays called The Abundance, Essays Old and New, about the process of writing. One of the things I know about writing is this. You spend it all, shoot it, play it, lose it all right away every time. Don't hoard what seems good for a later place in the book or for another book. Give it. Give it all and give it now. The very impulse to save something good for a better place Later is the signal to spend it now. Something will arise for later, something better. These things fill from behind, from beneath, like well water. Similarly, the impulse to keep yourself what you have learned is not only shameful, it is destructive. And anything you don't give freely and abundantly, it becomes lost to you. You open your safe and you would find their ashes. So spend it all, waste it all. And know that the gift is not extinguished by your giving. The church in Philippi, this is the last Sunday that we've preached through this book of joy, given and written as a letter from prison cell. And we arrive finally at this last little bit about generosity. It was actually there all along, but Paul says it explicitly and practically when he talks about the way that this community, this church has given to him in his needs and how it is received from him. We said early, for a lot of us here, myself included, Philippians is one of our favorite sets of Scripture. It's so rich and deep and lovely, the little book of joy. Paul wrote a lot of letters to a lot of churches, but he says in this letter that you are, you are different from the others. Many times I went out and I was in need, but only you entered into partnership with me. Only you have shared with me in such a way, and, and I have only received from you. Others may have offered, but, but I didn't have that kind of relationship with them. But with you all, with you all, well, we have something different where we can give and we can receive. And that has set the tone for the entire letter. This church for Paul, this community was different. And it was different because, well, because it shared with him. It wasn't just their possessions that they shared. It was, it was everything. The first line that Lou read for us, I'll read it again. It was good of you to share in my struggles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except for you. None shared except for you. And because of this relationship, they have become bound together. They have shared both in the trials of life, but they have shared of their very abundance, of their money, of their coin, of their field, of their flock. They have handed it over for the needs of the gospel to move forward in the world. Throughout this letter, Paul has said over and over again uh, to be joyful and to rejoice in all things. And the struggles and the trials, they go along with the joy. The two are inseparable. 
Paul knows that an invitation for them to participate in Christ, in the mind of Christ, is to participate in joy, in rejoicing, in thanksgiving, and in struggle. They're all there together. I, um, I say often that preachers only have a few sermons in them, and they give them uh, the trick is to know how to preach so that you all don't realize I'm preaching the same sermon week after week. Uh, and the, the friend of mine, Kurt, in Florida who I was with, we spent about half the time talking about church and theology and the Bible and scriptures, and uh, we both handed each other this Martin Luther quote that I've given to you, but I'll give to you again. Uh, Luther says, uh, he was asked, well, preacher, you keep preaching the same thing, this, this grace that God has given us freely by faith. You've, every week you say the same thing, and we are ready for something new. And Luther's response to them uh, it's funny, he and I remembered it differently. Uh, what I remember Luther saying is, Beloved, the reason week after week I hand you this is because week after week you have forgotten. Uh, <laughs> his rendition was, uh, Well, you don't look like people who know this yet. <laughs> so he's from Kentucky. He can just say it like it is. Uh, week after week we forget. Uh, This sermon is a sermon about stewardship and generosity, partly because I know on Wednesday of this week we're going to present you all together with a yearly budget that the staff and the elders and leadership have put together, and it will start to feel like a gloss of numbers and spreadsheets, and we might lose the forest for the trees. And so I thought we should probably talk about money a few days before this happens, and Philippians hands us this story of generosity at the end of the book. So we could do that together. But you all have set through several versions of this sermon, and there's nothing new that you will hear today. But I forget, and I believe that we all forget sometimes, what kind of economy we are living in the midst of. Grace freely given, freely received, and then passed on. The image that I've used over and over again is one of a river that we stand within, and if we dam it up and hold it back, then we might, in fact, burst. But if we become conduits, if we become pipes through which it flows, then we both receive the blessing and then we are allowed to pass it on. It's a very simple sermon, and it could be demonstrated with plumbing. So we could all go home now. But Paul knows, and we know, that it's not that simple. A few weeks ago, we talked about anxiety, about worry that that nags at us. And a lot of that anxiety is wrapped up in fear and insecurity that we might not have enough of what we need, whether that be coin or field or love forgiveness. I feel this. If I take this little, that little thing that knots up inside my chest and I thread it out and I I keep threading it out and, and finally I get to the source, I see there this fear and insecurity that I don't have what I need. And when I feel that, I can, I, I can feel my grip tighten on the world, on what's mine, on what I've earned. Something happens in Philippi, something about their life together 
that you received this word, this gospel, you've lived within Christ just as I am living within Christ, and it has changed your posture. It has relaxed your anxiety, and it has opened your hands to freely give. This is what Paul says about this community. There's a book I have on my shelf called The Paradox of Generosity, and it's this long longitudinal study of generous Americans and ungenerous Americans and all of these interviews that the authors do to figure out what makes one group of people uh, generous and what makes another people uh, hold on to things. And the finding isn't that revolutionary, except it is, which is that giving, giving, giving it away, letting it flow through you, not damming it up, it creates a better everything for you. Physically, you are a healthier person. You are happier in your relationships. You are more settled and grounded. This, isn't, this was not a spiritual uh, research project they undertook. It was just what it means to be a generous person versus someone who holds it in. Annie Dillard said, anything you don't freely give and abundantly, it becomes lost to you. You open your safe and you find ashes. The last chapter in Philippians, uh, Paul uses this set of words over and over again. Koinonia is one form of it, or koinos. It just means what we hold in common. Not what's mine and what's yours, but what, what is ours. It describes the community itself, a group holding in common the gift and grace of salvation from Christ. Not earned, but freely given and received. And it says then that everything is then held in common. They become the living manifestation of that dream that seems almost unimaginable from the second chapter in the book of Acts. That those early Christians were meeting together in homes and they were sharing everything together and no one was in need because if someone had, then they would sell and they would bring it and they would set it on the altar table. And if someone needed, they would walk with open hands and they would receive. And they were praising and they were rejoicing in the synagogues and the temples and in their homes day after day and, and numbers were being added into the community. And it was overflowing. This is Philippi. But again, here's also what I know. When I talk to friends of mine who are pastors and we discuss that spreadsheet and that budget and those numbers in the offering plate, we have the same conversation, which is, does it seem like, seem like giving has shifted? Seem like something has changed? And we all say, yes, it has. Something is different. And it can't just be that the Oklahoma economy is different because these friends work in Kentucky and they work in uh, the East Coast and West Coast and, and down in Texas. It's just everywhere. And uh, it's not hard to figure it out that people are, are anxious, pervasively anxious, not sure what's happening out in the world. And so the hands, the motion, the posture changes.
The paradox of generosity is to feel secure you have got to let go and trust. We call that faithfulness. About a month and a half ago, in Victoria, Texas, there was an Islamic center that was set on fire. Most of y'all may have read this news. It was a small little place, just 100, 200 or so Muslims would gather there for prayer and for community activities. But in the last few months, uh, hate crimes and religious discrimination have gone through the roof. Southern Poverty Law Center has estimated that where there was once just about 30-plus hate groups dedicated to discrimination toward Muslims, that, now, that number has now shot up past 100. And this isn't just theoretical hatred. It, it manifests itself in actual fires, burning actual property so that people can feel insecure and not settled in their own homes, in their own skin, in their own places of worship. And so in Victoria, Texas, a mosque was burned. And... Uh, at one point, uh, the imam of this mosque, whose name is Dr. Shahid uh, Hashmi, he heard a knock on his door at home. And uh, he opens the door, and he, he sees a leader of the Jewish community there. And he's got in his hands a set of keys, and so he hands him the keys to the synagogue, and he says, you need this, because you don't have a place to worship. And then they set up a page online so that people could donate. And uh, they needed about $800,000 to rebuild what they had lost, and they received that much in a day. And now they have over a million dollars. Many of the donors uh, were Jewish families. In Tampa, Florida, there's another mosque that was lit on fire and burned to the ground. And the leadership of, of that uh, mosque, they set up a, a similar effort to be able to raise money. And they were watching as donations came in. And they realized, they, you know, you expect money to come in in denominations of 5, 10, 25, 50, 100, some round number that makes sense to us. But they kept coming in in weird numbers. Uh, they, they figured out that they were divisible by 18, $18, 36, 72, 90, and on up. It was curious why this would be until they learned and they started to read the names attached with the, dono- with the donations, Avi and Cohen and Goldstein and Reuben. And they realized and found out through conversations that uh, 18 is this number of generosity for Jewish people. It's this combination of two letters in the Hebrew alphabet that mean life or prosperity. And so when you give someone a gift in that denomination, you're wishing them well. And then behind that was a whole host of their uh, cousin religion handing them over this generosity that was overflowing. In a world that was quite anxious, so anxious that it was erupting in chaos, these communities, both finding themselves as religious minorities, both knowing their own sets of persecution, they found themselves bound together in suffering and solidarity and somehow finding a mutual kind of joy. The world had taken 
And it would have made total sense for everyone in those communities to tighten down and huddle up and pull the shutters. But instead, they reached out and they handed over and found themselves the richer for it. In St. Louis, Missouri, there is a Jewish cemetery. And a month or two ago, a whole host of headstones were turned over and vandalized, desecrated. So a Muslim woman named Linda Sarzor, uh, she started a page that people could give to. In three hours, they raised $20,000, which is what they needed to, to do the repair work to the tombs. Uh, checked this morning, and the page is up to $160,000. While they were raising money for this tragedy, a bunch of Muslims from the community banded together with a bunch of Christians and Jews, and they came and they began to lift all of the tombstones back up as much as they could. They began to repair what was broken. In the midst of this effort, another cemetery in Philadelphia was vandalized, and another set of several hundred tombs were turned over. And so, Linda, she said, well, what we can do is whatever money we make extra here, we will then pass on to whatever they need in Philly. Because she was standing in the river of grace and abundance, and she was letting it flow through her. These communities were letting it flow through them. And so, Linda started receiving messages from Jewish folks around the world. I'll read a couple to you. Thank you. While this money itself will be meaningful to repair the damage, as a Jew, I'm also grateful for the thankfulness, thoughtfulness, and outreach. I hope that my community can be just as supportive of our Muslim brothers and sisters. I literally have tears in my eyes as I'm writing this. After a couple of tough days in my house of seeing how some of the anti-Semitism is hitting my six-year-old daughter, this made me feel hopeful again. Sincerely, Lori, I hope that my community can be just as supportive as yours has been. You feel the cycle. You feel the give and receive. It's right there in the midst of generosity. It always is. Again, I knew that we Jews would need to stand with Muslims in these days, but I never thought we'd need you to stand with us. Bless you all. We will stand together to get through the darkness. One more. Linda, I've lived in New York most of my adult life, but I grew up in University City, Missouri, and my parents and all four grandparents are buried in the cemetery that was desecrated. I thank you so much for the financial and emotional support and the good work to help bring people together. And then this, please let me know if there is a special underfunded cause that's special to you so that I can give back in some small way, standing in the river and letting it flow through them. Paul knows that anxiety and insecurity, it threatens the very fabrics of a common life together of the koinonia that they have established in Christ. And so he gives them a very practical way to strengthen their bonds together. And and it is to turn over some of what we might call mine or yours to everyone. Turn it loose to the community. 
And this is entering into, stepping right into, falling into the paradox in faithfulness. That in giving, we are made rich. And by hoarding, we find ourselves poor. It doesn't take a lot of reads through the scriptures to see this play out over and over and over again. The most well-quoted Bible verse in all of Scripture for us is, somebody tell me what it is. What is it? What does everybody know? Yeah, John 3.16. You all all know that it's everybody's favorite. It's the one we all learn. We could all say it together, right? Let's try it. For God. Yeah, it's a lovely piece of scripture. It's, it's beautiful and memorized for a good reason. Uh, years and years ago, maybe by now 15 or plus, there was a little book that came out. Some of y'all may have loved this book called The Prayer of Jabez. But it was this, this idea that God has in the heavens, wherever the heavens are, a storehouse of blessing. But God has not given us that blessing because we have not asked for it correctly. And so if we would learn to ask, then God will open up the storehouses, the treasures, and will shower upon us blessings that have been held back. I contend that this is dangerous, bordering on heretical. The question would be, what has God withheld from us? What has God not already turned over? Do we not have a generous, almost a wasteful God in how much has been given? For God so loved the world that he gave everything. Everything. It turns out that generosity Grace freely given is just what God is made of. And if we want to participate in this life, everlasting life, then we step into that flow. A few weeks ago, Charles shared with us a reflection by... uh, Benedictine monk, right? David Stendhal Rost. And uh, I went back and read it this week, but it talks about in there, the, the, the word for affluent is the word for overflowing. And how it's our tendency that when we make bowls with which we might receive, as it starts to get to the top to overflow, we just make the bowls a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and there's never an overflow. And the overflow is what we would call gratefulness or gratitude. And so, uh, Brother David, he says that what you might, in fact, do then is to make the vessel smaller so that the overflow happens sooner and you get to gratefulness and thanksgiving quicker. And then I realized uh, that this, too, is a bowl. And 
and we pass it each Sunday. And you all set some, some part of your, your portion, your coin, your field, your paycheck, your love, your trust in here. Every year when we get to budget time, we have a, a conversation about, well, if we have spent more money than we've taken in, well, what are we going to do next year so that we don't have this problem? Uh, and one of the questions we always have is, we have all of this money that we give away every month to other people outside of this church, 10% plus. It's been a commitment that you all have established for a long time. I'm looking at the prices you remember and have held this sacred. Libby, you and James are part of this effort to build in this generosity into our budget so that when we take in, we always give back out. We said that we would set this church in the midst of the river and the flow, and we would let the blessing flow through us. And so every time we have a conversation as leaders about, well, we seem to need a little bit more than what we've got so that we could be at a good, even, healthy, stable financial place. There's always this set of money over here that we give away. And at no point do our leaders, and I think any of you would say, let's just make that bowl a little bigger. and Let's capture that that we give away and bring it back in inside of us and hold it in because we really need it. We make the bowl a little bigger or a little smaller the next year so that there is an overflow. Spring Creek has always said that we will be a place with an overflow. And so if we give $10 next year, we will send some of that away. And if we give 100000 we will send some of that away. And if we give a million, we will send some of that away. Our budget will be somewhere around half a million this year. Half a million dollars to fund everything we do here that we call ministry. To pay our staff, to keep the lights on, to train our kids down the hall, the ones that you all have birthed and raised here, and the ones who've shown up through the doors you didn't know until last week. Half a million dollars will help keep praying so going. Half a million dollars will help fund the missionary partners who are working all over the world, people like Todd Price. Half a million dollars will help build wells in Africa with Christopher and his village. That's about the size of the bowl. And there are some in this room who are anxious that it might not be filled But if koinonia is true, if the common life is what we live within, then it is not yours to fill, it is ours. Paul says to this church, no one partnered with me but you. You have given, and I have enough. In fact, my bowl is now overflowing is the language in the Greek. I have more than enough. Now know this. That whatever it is that you need, church in Philippi, God will supply according to his overflow, according to God's generosity. And our God does not save, but spends it all. So do not be afraid and do not be anxious, but stand in the river. Feel it rush through you. Awaken your love and then pass it on.
I believe this to be true. It is a paradox, and I have to practice it every week, but I believe this to be true, that when we give, we will have enough. So may we be faithful and step into the flow of God. Let us pray. We are but beggars standing in the wasteland with open hands, God. Asking that you would fill us up to overflowing. Oh, that we would cut channels in our heart so that everything we have received as a blessing would flow out of us. That we would be brave and courageous and not afraid. that we would spend it all. We thank you for the flow. We thank you for what you have given. Above all, that you have given yourself freely out of love in Christ. And upon receiving this gift, God, we will we want for nothing. We want for nothing. So turn us loose in generosity, in love, that we might not just be a place of grace, but a people of grace. We pray all of this with thanksgiving, with gratitude. Amen.